So we're continuing to look together at the big stories of our faith. Stories that if you grew up in the church, you probably learned really early on, but stories that also tend to stay kids' stories. We're reclaiming them this fall, taking them back for ourselves as adults, looking at them more deeply to see what they now have to say to us about what it means to follow Jesus. The story this week, as we said, is the story of Samson. It's a story I loved as a kid because of the feats of amazing strength we got to read about, because of the strange connection to his big, long, flowing hair. But it is another one of those stories that when we read it again now as adults, we're probably going to wonder why we ever read this to children. It's a story about love and lust and violence and revenge and bloodshed. It reminds me much more of Game of Thrones than of a kid's story. So as we take a deeper look at it this morning, fasten your seatbelts. As we open our Bibles, I'll invite you, as we do each week, to take a moment to do whatever you need to do to be able to listen well to words from the book that we love. Once Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute and went into her, Now the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. So they circled around and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They kept quiet all night, thinking, let us wait until the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay only until midnight. Then at midnight he rose up, took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that's in front of Hebron. It's like 40 miles away. After this, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, Coax him. Find out what makes his strength so great and how we may overpower him so that we may bind him in order to subdue him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me what makes your strength so great and how you could be bound so that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that are not dried out, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. Then the lords of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not dried out, and she bound him with them. While men were lying in wait in the inner chamber, she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a strand of fiber snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you could be bound. So he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson! The men lying in wait were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off with his arms like thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you could be bound. He said to her, 
If you weave the seven locks of my head with a web and make it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into a web and made them tight with a pin. Then she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson! But he awoke from his sleep, pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me three times now and have not told me what makes your strength so great. Finally, after she had nagged him with her words day after day and pestered him, he was tired to death. So he told her his whole secret and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me. I would become weak and be like anyone else. So when Delilah realized that he had told her his whole secret, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, This time come up, for he has told his whole secret to me. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She let him fall asleep on her lap, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. He began to weaken. His strength left him. Then she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. When he awoke from his sleep, he thought, I'll go out, just as in other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to their god, Dagon, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson and let him entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the attendant who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, so that I may lean on them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson performed. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, Lord God, remember me and strengthen me only this once, O God, so that with this one act of revenge I may pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he strained with all his might, and the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So those he killed at his death were more than he had killed during his life. 
Then his brothers and his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's a crazy story, isn't it? It's Judges 16 if you want to keep your Bible open, but the whole saga of Samson is chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, and it's crazy stuff. In this story in particular, I couldn't help but just thinking, what was he thinking? You heard it. Delilah tries to betray him three times. Each time he lies, and she tries it. So he lies again, and she tries that. And he lies again, and she tries that. And so as she's complaining a fourth time, he tells her. He had to have known she was going to use it against him. What was he thinking? That's the question I've been pondering all week. Because it could have just been another episode in his increasingly destructive patterns in life. If you read back through the story, he's increasingly reckless and self-destructive in the way that he's living his life in this period. He seems clearly to be addicted to sex and to women, clearly addicted to, to danger and adrenaline. So is this just that? I don't think so. I think that's part of it. But I don't think it begins or ends there. I think there's a lot more going on. And so as we look more closely at this story, we're going to see three things Samson does before it all falls apart. We'll see that Samson compromises his calling, forgets the gift, and loses sight of his purpose. He compromises his calling, he forgets the gift, and he loses sight of his purpose. First thing he does is compromise his calling. If we back up to chapter 13, a page earlier, we'll see that Samson is one of two people in the whole Old Testament whose birth was foretold by the angel of the Lord. The angel announces to his mother that she's going to have a son, that he will be set apart, that he will be a Nazarite, which just means set apart. We'll hear more about Nazarites if you go back to Numbers chapter 6, you can find out. But the gist is that these are people who take on a special vow to do a special purpose for God. And while they're fulfilling that vow, they do three things. They avoid alcohol entirely, the fruit of the vine. They uh, don't touch anything that's dead, which may seem odd to us, but was harder then. And the third thing they do is they don't shave their head or their beards. So Samson's hair and beard have, have never been touched. And that's a sign for people to see that they are consecrated. They're set apart for God for this special purpose in their lives. And Samson was going to be a Nazarite from birth for his whole life. Other famous Nazarites, John the Baptist. He was one we probably know most about. Jesus also took a Nazarite vow on Maundy Thursday. He says, I won't touch the fruit of the vine until I come into my Father's kingdom. That's a Nazarite vow. Samson is one set apart from God from before birth. This is Samson's calling in life, was to be set apart to begin to rescue Israel from their enemies, the Philistines. By where we are, though, in the story in chapter 16, Samson has completely abandoned this calling. By the end of our story, it's all gone. What's interesting, though, if you read those whole four chapters, is that 
he doesn't abandon that calling wholesale. He doesn't wake up one morning and say, eh, forget it, and just give it up. He gives it up one small compromise at a time. He abandons it, not the whole thing at once, but inch by inch by inch. Until here, he is so deep into sin that he is entirely lost. It began one day when he got jumped by a lion in a vineyard, and God's strength filled him, and he actually killed the lion that was attacking him. He comes to pass by that way again a little while later and sees a beehive growing in the lion's carcass. So he reaches in and eats some of the honey. Remember, though, one of the Nazarite vows, you don't touch anything dead. But he crosses the line to eat something sweet, and nothing happens. He's not struck by lightning. His strength doesn't leave him, so he continues on. And we hear a little while later that he's now throwing a raucous party after his engagement to a Philistine woman, the kind of party at which in his day there would have been a lot of alcohol consumed. He breaks the next part of his vow, and still nothing happens. The sky doesn't collapse. He's not struck by lightning. His strength remains when he needs it shortly after that party to do another crazy thing. And so he continues on. He keeps pushing. When that fiancé is killed in chapter 15, he begins to get more and more reckless with women. We find him uh, not only beginning with that engagement to a Philistine woman, a foreigner, as he's a leader of Israel, shouldn't be fraternizing with the enemy. He's later now visiting prostitutes in the city of Gaza, the capital of the Philistines. And then falling in love with Delilah, who's actively trying to betray him. And it's with her that he compromises the last piece of his calling as a Nazarite. And she shaves off all of his hair. What we have to see is that all of this happens slowly. It's stretched out over the 20 years in which he's a leader over the people of Israel. He doesn't abandon that calling all at once, but inch by inch. And we have to see that this morning because it's often the same way that we do. As we told our children, they were also consecrated from birth in baptism. They're set apart not by having long flowing hair they can't shave, but by having been marked with the waters of baptism. They've been set apart and made holy for a special purpose in the world. And few of us betray that calling all at once. It's much more likely taken inch by inch, by inch. Tiptoeing into temptation and sin until we are so deep in that our faith seems gone. We hear way too many stories of those who fall from grace in catastrophic ways, but how it all begins is with a single little step. It's lust that turns to pornography, that turns to an affair, that destroys the whole family. It's greed that turns into taking some liberties, that turns into full-on embezzling, that ruins a company and many lives. It's stress that turns to a bottle, that turns to dependence, that leads to disaster. There are too many stories we could tell, and they all begin not with that giant leap to the end, but with the compromise of an inch, and then another one, and another one, and another one. 
Samson's story is a reminder for us to stay diligent, that sin matters, that we are called to be set apart and holy just like Samson was. Samson's downfall began when he compromised his calling. But it continued when he forgot the gift. As we said, he was a Nazarite from birth. And part of that calling was that God gave him superhuman strength to be able to rise up when needed to lead Israel against its enemies. He was born at a really dire time in their history. They'd been ruled over for 40 years by the Philistines, and they were in danger of being assimilated into the Philistine nation, of disappearing from the face of the earth entirely. And so God takes this one man, gives him incredible strength to seemingly rise up on his own to begin to deliver God's people from the Philistines. And yet, Samson forgets that this strength is a gift from God for a purpose God has given him. And by this time in our story, I think that he thinks it's just his strength given to save his own neck. He enters into these more and more dangerous situations, being more and more reckless and foolish against greater and greater odds, and his strength has always bailed him out. So I think at this point he thinks he's just a a strong dude. I think that's what happens with Delilah. I think that's what he's thinking when he finally tells her the secret of his strength. While he sleeps in her lap, Delilah has someone shave his head. She yells as she has three times before, The Philistines are upon you, Samson! He must have known immediately when he awoke that his hair was gone. He had to have seen this coming. She's followed through the last three times. She must have again. And yet he springs up and thinks again, as it said, that his strength won't have left him that he'll jump up, as other times, and shake himself free. He thinks that he still will be strong. He doesn't think his strength has anything to do with his Nazarite vows anymore. It's simply his natural ability. It's his own valor and cunning and skill. He's just a strong guy. But the very next verse says it. He did not know that the Lord had left him. It was the Lord who was his strength. It was not his own, but a gift given to him. He had forgotten God entirely, not only compromising his gift, but forgetting that all of this was gift. I think we too are in danger of the same thing. It's one of the dangers of baptizing infants, that we take these children who know nothing of it yet and announce that they are God's own, bought with a price, adopted as God's children, forgiven and made new. And at some point along the way, we forget how incredible of a gift that is to us. We begin to presume upon it, to think that it's just ours. It's not that it's grace, it's that I'm a good person. It's not God's gift given to us, doesn't matter what I do or how I live. I'm a Christian because I was baptized. It's mine. And all the rest of life, too, we begin to forget the gift and begin to believe it's just ours, that we deserve it, that it's from our hard work, it's from our skill, it's from our deserving. Yet it's all grace. It's all grace all the way down. It's all a gift from God. And when we forget that, that we don't deserve any of this. 
then we also forget all of its purpose. And that's the last thing Samson did. He compromised his calling inch by inch. He forgot that it was all gift. And he also lost sight of his purpose. See, Samson, at this point, believed that strength was an end in and of itself. He used it for his own gain and his own good to get out of trouble, to seek thrill and danger, to get women. But there was a reason God had called Samson. He was supposed to be rescuing his people from the Philistines. He was supposed to be a judge, a leader over them, to rescue them and set them free. And this is always the way that God works. When God gives us gifts, they're for a purpose. When God chooses us, bringing us through the waters of baptism and making us God's own, there's a reason. There's a purpose on the other side of that water. See, God has been on a mission ever since the garden. God has been working to establish these descendants of Abraham as a nation to draw the world to itself so that on a day coming, God might be born into it as Jesus, that he might be crucified and die and rise again and then establish the church that we might be God's messengers to go out to the ends of the earth to announce God's coming kingdom. God has been working tirelessly to accomplish this plan in the world and the grace God gave Samson and the grace and gifts God gives us are given in order to move that plan forward. Which means all that you've been given, you've been given in order to join God's mission. Don't forget your purpose. I don't know exactly how that's going to play out in your life, but I know that you were made as you that you were given all of the gifts you were given, that you were put here now all for a reason, that you live in your neighborhood and your community for a reason, that you work where you do for a reason, you shop where you do, eat where you do, play where you do, all for a reason, that God has gathered us in as his own, that God has forgiven us and washed us clean and given us access to incredible life-changing power in Jesus, that God has made you a part of the church all in order to activate you, that you might use your gifts, God's gifts, to join in God's mission in this place so that you could shine God's light into darkness to seek out the lonely and the hurting and the lost so that you could see needs in the world and dream about how to meet them so that you could announce and share the good news of what God is doing in the world with others and invite them to come along. You too have been given all of this for a purpose. It's not for you. It's not for your own enjoyment and use. It's for God and God's mission in the world. Don't lose sight of your purpose. Samson's fall came because he compromised his calling. He forgot the gift. And he lost sight of his purpose. And yet, despite all of that, this story is really a story about grace. For all that Samson does in his fall, this is a story of grace. A grace of that consecration that sets us apart, that is God's grace and is to show God's grace in the world. The free gift that is God's grace. The purpose on the other side of God's grace. The grace goes deeper than we could imagine. 
It's not just a story of grace because Samson comes to his senses at the end, because he prays to God for strength once more, because he pushes over the pillars and in his dying kills more Philistines than he ever did in his life. It's a story about grace because Samson very clearly points us forward to Jesus. Obviously, their lifestyles are a little different. But look deeper than that. Both of them have their births foretold by an angel. Both of them are set apart for God's special purpose from before they were even born. Both were endowed by God with superhuman gifts. Both were betrayed by someone very close to them for money. Both were arrested, tortured, humiliated, made to perform for their captors. Both of them die with their arms outstretched. And both in dying seem to be truly defeated, while neither truly were. Both of them gave their lives to save God's people. Samson, by knocking down the pillars that held up the temple of Dagon, killing himself, but also the leaders of the Philistines and 3,000 others who were on the roof watching the festivities. Jesus, in dying, did a little bit more. In dying, Jesus, too, was brought into the temple of our greatest enemy, Satan himself, who was so sure that this was victory. Imagine the celebrations in hell as Jesus hung on the cross. But what none of them saw coming was what happened next. That Jesus, too, tore down those two pillars that held up that temple. In this case, sin and guilt. And the whole thing came tumbling down. In his death, Jesus didn't just destroy a foreign false idol and some heads of state. Jesus destroyed sin and death and the devil himself. Jesus' death didn't just begin to deliver Israel from an enemy state. Jesus' death rescued us from the power of darkness, and it set us free. And so this morning, we get to come to the table to receive that kind of grace. We get to come to the table to remember that death and all that Jesus has accomplished in it. That by his suffering, by his torture, by his wounds, we were healed Come in a few moments to remember the grace that has set us free, that has made us holy, that is a free gift, and that calls us now to join God's mission. But as you come to the table, don't just remember some stuff. Come to be joined together to that same Jesus, to the one who gives himself to us in the bread and the cup, who promises to be with us always, even to the ends of the age. And come to to hope to root your life not in the visible realities of the world around us, but in the very kingdom of God that is breaking in, to catch a glimpse at this table of the inbreaking shalom of God, of the victory that Jesus has already won, that as you go out to return to your life, you may be ready to join in that mission. So come to Jesus and come to the table.